You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloo, the podcast helping water leaders to discover solutions and drive change. I'm the host, Travis Luke. This episode comes to you from the Reservoir Center for Water Solutions in Washington, D.C., where Waterloo is a media partner. This is episode number 197, Building Up Rural Resilience. Resilience is a shared characteristic of rural communities, often dealing with adversity through their close-knit and resourceful nature. However, ongoing rural struggles related to water infrastructure, pollution, and workforce shortages are now amplified by the effects of climate change. New strategies and technical assistance can build up their resilience as discussed in this podcast with Olga Morales-Pate, CEO of the Rural Community Assistance Partnership. Olga sheds light on the power of collaboration and regionalization, enabling small water systems to benefit from economies of scale and gain a more powerful voice. She also emphasizes the critical need for flexible funding mechanisms and workforce development to enhance the capacity of rural communities. Before starting, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Flume Utility and Business Solutions. I have a flume system at my house to track water use in real time and show me what's happening on my smartphone. Flume also provides crucial insights to water providers and state and regional planning agencies, enabling them to conserve water, stop leaks, plan for the future, comply with regulations, and so much more. Flume is partnering with leading water utilities across the country such as the San Antonio Water System, Orange County Municipal Water District, and East Bay Municipal Utilities District. Flume's nationwide network of sensors collect residential water use data at five-second intervals. It provides detailed analysis of how water is used indoors and out, even down to the fixture level. To learn more, visit flumewater.com and please reach out to their team at partnerships at flumewater.com. You're in the water loop. Olga, I'm so glad to be here with you. Uh, I have been a longtime fan of what RCAP does, uh, just creating great change in communities across this country. Um, and so it's wonderful to meet you and get to talk more about your organization. Thank you for the opportunity, Travis. Really, really appreciate the time and um, the opportunity to speak more about the great work we do, so yeah. thanks. Uh, rural communities, mm -hmm. when people hear that phrase, they probably get a picture in their mind, things that, that come into their head. Um, how do you describe rural communities when, when you hear that phrase? You know, um, it, it comes very natural and very easy for me because uh, that's the space that I have been moving in um, for the last actually for my entire life. I grew up in this very small community, population under a thousand. And so rural communities are very small, mm. um, small communities in nature, not always small in, um, in resources. Yeah. You know, rural communities are very resourceful, but small communities um, in the size, right? Now, if we're going to talk about the actual definition by funder regulations and things like that, we're talking about population of under 3,300. Oh, wow. Or, uh, th I'm sorry, 3,300 connections under 10,000 population. Okay. It really varies 
by definition, but for me, rural community is really a small community where there's a lot of interconnect, a lot of work, a lot of um, healthy mm. um, relationships, very tight connections. Mm. Very, you know, they, they support each other. Um, and they all are different, just like you and, and me. Yeah. Very, very different. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, some of the strengths. I was going to ask you about the strengths of these communities because I, I think a lot of people that haven't spent time in rural communities might not realize, like you said, the, the, that they're very resourceful. That, yeah, could you talk about that? Oh, yeah, resiliency. Mm. That, you know, when you say rural communities, resiliency comes to mind. They're very, very resilient. They're very resourceful. Um, a lot of times, and this is not specific to the United States, but speaking about what happens in this country and in our rural communities, they don't have a voice. We're talking about communities that are unincorporated. Mm. And so sometimes they don't have a voice, they don't have a political representation, they don't, govern, they don't have a government structure. So they're really, they're up, up for themselves. And so being resourceful and resilient is something that probably distinguishes um, rural communities from like urban communities. They're very close-knitted communities. And I think that's part of it. I mean, everybody helps everybody, everybody knows everybody. And so on the resource piece, I think, you know, that's that's one of the bigger, bigger strengths that they have. It's just that they are very, you know, they, they work together as a unit. Mm. You think of a community, they're usually a, a very strong unit. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, water challenges facing rural communities. I know that there's uh, a multitude of them and they're very different. I guess one of the things with rural communities too is like there's no one size fits all, right? They all kind of have different circumstances, situations. But what are some of the kind of leading water challenges facing rural communities in the U.S. right now? Well, Travis, I would say if you would have asked me that question, say, 15 years ago, mm. my answer would have been different. Um, what are challenges right now for, in small communities? A lot of them are happening as a result of the climate change and all the changes that we're seeing in the environment. They're very impacted. I mean, we have the West mm. um, impacted by the drought. We have the coastal areas where the sea level rise is impacting um, those communities. We have contaminants that are showing up. And, and then so the number of challenges in the water, um, the water challenges for my small community are very localized in a lot of cases, you know, depending ge geographically where the community is. We have communities that are suffering from flooding. We have communities that are being that are experiencing fires. There are a lot of things that are new, and so these are all in, in recent times. I've been in the water industry for close to thirty years at wow. this point, but I think the changes that we've seen in recent times are definitely compounding the challenges, the water challenges our communities have, and um, the challenges in small communities are particularly difficult because we're talking about, you know, as I was saying, you know, it's small community. When I when I say small community, we could be talking 60, you know, um, residences, maybe 200. But in any case, the economies of scale, it's really the big challenge. If we talk about the challenge, regardless of whether it's drought or whether it's flood or where it's fire, the lack of resources and the lack of economies of scale, those are the real challenges. Politically, they don't have a voice. 
Um, and, and as I said before, sometimes they're not politically represented because they don't have a government structure. We're talking about, you know, maybe a group of community leaders that are organized, that are possibly coming to um, the county council, um, council of governments and bringing up these issues. But when we talk about the, the challenges of rural communities, they might start on the water, and, and that's where you might feel the effects of it, but it really begins everywhere else. Mm. It begins with the lack of numbers, the lack of ability to bring resources, the lack of comp ability to compete for those resources. And to by the time we get to our actual challenge, we have been dealing with a lot of other problems. Yeah, I mean, and, and probably you talked about 15 years ago, mm -hmm. maybe then it was just this old infrastructure, right. right? Like just the pipes, the pumps, the water systems that actually mm -hmm. <laughs> serve these communities are in, you know, they need improvement, they're in disrepair, where's the money for this? How can these communities access that money? Right. But then you're saying, now you've got these forces of climate that are coming in on top of all that, just compounding the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you, this reminds me a lot of, we went to California, to the Central Valley um, last spring, and to some of those small, very, very small communities, and saw how <clears throat> they had to team up with the next small community to try to get some of that economy of scale. Um, they had to form their own little service district mm -hmm. so they could get a voice, get like official recognition. So is that kind of thing, happen out there in other communities like are starting to a little bit it, it's starting to yeah um it, it, it's starting to in a lot of places um you know um we call it at rcap we call it regionalization mm -hmm. and a regionalization is a process for us it's a program for communities is a process deciding who they want to work together with and how far they want to commit to working together. But yeah, unfortunately, as a result of everything that we're seeing, you know, regulatory requirements, aging infrastructure, the lack of uh, workforce in the water mm -hmm. industry, which is also very important, climate change and so many other things, communities are really having to think and, and look outside of themselves, you know, especially in utilities, outside of their service lines for solutions because they can't go it alone. You know, so that is a reality that we're seeing a lot um, throughout the country where, where especially small communities, I mean, we can speak about what's going on right now. We have a lot of federal funding. Just think about all the, the historic amount of funding that it's available. And a lot of it is dedicated to small communities, but the lack of capacity, mm. it's, it's also a reality that keeps them from getting um, to those funds. And when I talk about lack of capacity, it's not necessarily just not having someone there to be able to process the application, but even being able to compete for that funding. And so capacity comes in a lot of levels for small communities, shows up in, in so many different places. <laughs> and so how do you make projects competitive? How do you um, how do you make projects large enough that consultants will be interested in, in in competing or, or bidding on those projects. And so so there is the need to ban forces, to, to create projects that are larger in scope, that you know are able to serve more communities. Um, 
So yeah, we've been doing that kind of work for a number of years. You know, I, I, I've told you, I am from New Mexico. New Mexico has been in one of the states affected by drought for 20 years at this point, right? And so out of a need, we have been doing regionalization. We have been bringing um, groups of communities together. Uh, obviously, they decide which community they want to work with and to what extent and things like that. But it has been a game changer. And I think there are opportunities in other parts of the state where we can do more of that because our communities are falling farther and farther behind. And, and to be honest with you, um, Travis, one of my concerns is that we will get to the end of this funding period, this historical funding period, and our communities will not have addressed and will not have taken advantage of the, the resources available because they are unable to compete. Yeah. So that, that is a concern. Sometimes there's like this stigma or dislike for the idea of regionalization. Um, uh, you know, because local local communities like to have local ownership, mm -hmm. right, and, and autonomy and independence, and that's a source of pride too. Um, I'm glad to hear that's shifting a little bit because there's, uh, for all the reasons you outlined, it's really kind of critical to move move in this direction. Um, so I'm glad that's happening. What else, uh, RCAP as an organization, could you talk about what you do to to help? these communities, especially when it comes to water, kind of what's what's your role in all of this? And the reasons that I've been a fan. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, what do we do? So, oh my gosh, you a know, lot. We, we, do, we do a lot. So let's just take one community, you know, um, we'll call it community A okay. for, for uh, purpose of this exercise. But, you know, let's say um, that particular community is out of compliance. And so we get called in, we get referred by the state agency to go in and, and work with them on the compliance issue. But in the process of working with them, we find out that it's not necessarily a compliance issue. The compliance issue itself is a symptom of something else. And it's a problem that they've been dragging on for a while. And, you know, we have to do a pretty in-depth assessment of that community to figure out what the root cause of it is. And it could very well be that they have a dysfunctional board that hasn't made decisions that have financial implications that will then lead to, to um, addressing the compliance issue. Mm. It could be that the infrastructure has been falling apart for such a long time and they have refused to invest in that infrastructure that also has less led to that problem. It could be that they haven't raised their rates in 15 years. Mm. And so it could be a number of things. And so one of the things that I think makes um, RCAP unique is that we have the ability to work with communities long-term. Travis, we can stay in communities. I have communities. I, I've been a technical assistance provider myself. I was. I did that for 12 years initially. And I have um, seen how, you know, the process evolves, right? But say for this community, back to, to community A, if they have a compliance issue and they don't have an operator or they don't have a treatment system or things like that, where do we have to begin? Mm -hmm. And so, as I was saying, we have communities that we stay with for years. I have communities that I've been working with for 15 years. And um, one of the board members said, they're your extended family. They are our extended family. You know, they become our extended family. One of the things that I, I think makes um, RCAP unique 
and the technical assistance the services that we provide is that we create the trust. We have to work with those communities over the long term. And why would they work for us if they didn't trust us to work with them and to give them the right tools and the right advice and to bring the re right resources for them? And so that is very important, creating the trust and creating relationships, long-term long -term relationships with these communities. And we have been doing that for, for a very, very long time. And I think that's why you're a fan of, of the work that we do, because it's very comprehensive in nature. We try to meet the community. We always come to the community and meet the community where the community is and address their needs and whatever they might be. Like I said, it could be staff, it could be financial, it could be managerial, it could be technical, it could be funding, it could be anything. And so those are big umbrellas because when you unpack each one of those, there's just so much that needs to be done. And it seems like you're really a partner with the we community. You know, you're not coming in and telling them what mm -hmm. to do and walking away. You're there to, to like understand what's going on, what they need and help them kind of get, get that. It is, is very important for us to understand the needs of the communities because one of the things that we are always reminded, um, that we remind ourselves, there's over 400 technical assistance providers at this point um, from RCAP that, that do the kind of work, the kind of work that, that I'm describing. It's not about mandate and we don't have the ability to mandate anything. And we don't want to either. At the end of the day is the community who's going to be who's going to have to live with whatever decisions are made. We're, we're going to move on to the next community, the next project, once we, we leave them solid enough, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's important for them that they own that part. It's important that they understand um, that whatever decisions they make will have implications, and they're going to live with those decisions. And it's our job to make them aware of you know the pros and the bad, uh, the pros and the cons of every one of those decisions so yeah. yeah could you just kind of briefly explain uh how you have these geographic areas around the country just just what your setup is yeah 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 so we um our cap covers through our, our partners we cover the entire nation and the territories there are six partners that have been with the um part of the network for 50 years mm. and so we have you know depending on which part of the country there's an there might be a different partner but I can I can tell you Travis that we have been very very intentional in training staff across the nation to have a pretty similar set of skills the regions are individual nonprofit organizations right but they they work um, with us you know we have a collective agreement we, we work very closely but they have other services. The regions have other services. So it doesn't stop on the water or wastewater. Right. There are other services and the services are very specific to, to the region. And so, you know, sometimes they are able to stay with a community um, to develop housing or to develop economic development or other, other areas that the community might need. It begins with the water and wastewater because we have to recognize that in order to build a community vertical, you need the horizontal infrastructure, right? The, the infrastructure, underground infrastructure, the water and the, the wastewater, because that basically set the stage, sets the stage for the rest of the communities. Yeah, to have to have housing, to have right. jobs, whatever it is you need, uh, you have to have water, mm -hmm. right? That's yeah. pretty foundational yeah. to, to everything. Um, could you talk a little bit more maybe about some of the places that you've helped or some examples, some success stories, some of your favorite kinds of solutions, that, that kind of thing? Uh, me personally? 
Uh, or, or the organization? <laughs> Both. Yeah. Oh, well, great. You know, like I, I was telling you, um, regionalization. Mm. It's, it's part of the work that, that, and I have done a lot of it myself. So I'm a huge advocate for regional solutions because I've seen um, what it can do for entire communities. And you touched up on a, on a point earlier that I didn't really um, address. The need to protect the identity of these communities. I think that's very, very important. And I think that's the one thing that maybe distinguishes us from maybe other organizations. I, I mentioned, you know, that the um, honoring the need for communities to work with some communities versus others. You know, sometimes it's like us as individuals. <laughs> I might not agree with your values, right? So why would I want to work with you? Um, things like that and so the communities make those kind of decisions so on the regionalization side we have a lot of we have been very successful and i think we are leading at the national level on on you know those kind of efforts and, and bringing communities together and, and collaborating um at the national level there are just so many successes mm. so many successes that we do we we are leading on we're leading on a lot of things including um the training for for board board members we do a lot of training for um operators as well mm. we do training for for billing clerks which is another part of the workforce that we're seeing disappear for our from our utilities um so you know we have the the focus that we have the focus of the the organization um it's on the technical assistance and like i described Technical assistance can be on any of the levels and wherever the community needs us, wherever the utility needs us. And then we have the training program. And, and the training program is is been very, very successful because it's very customized to the needs of, of the, the communities and the utilities as well. Then we have the advocacy program, right? On the advocacy program, I, I would like to say that we have been very successful in bringing funding um, to continue to expand the services that we do. So that's one of the many successes. I mean, if you let me just choose one, that, that's really my challenge, right? We have a lot of very successful programs. We have a lot of success on how, if I were to to tell you, um, let's just talk about EPA since you, 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 you have experience with EPA. When I started with um, RCAC 20 years ago, we had two funding programs that came from EPA. And it, life was really easy, right? Mm -hmm. It was USDA, it was HHS, and there were two programs from um, from EPA. Right now, we have 11 different funding programs from EPA. So while life is complicated for us as technical assistance providers, it really has helped us be able to further resources to help communities and support them and do more of what we're doing and have a bigger reach. I mean, we have over 400 across the nation, I think, at this point. And so we're able to do more. But at the same time, when we have the number of public water systems across the country, it's not enough. Right, sure. Especially on the small, on the small side. We have so many challenges with regulations, aging infrastructure, aging workforce, retiring workforce, you know about the yeah. um, silver wave. And, and so, if we can um, continue to grow that mm. workforce mm. And, and do more of it. But, you know, I think that's a, that's a huge success and that speaks for itself on just the fact that we have been doing 
growing. Well, well, that was something I wasn't really fully aware of. So I, I, I thought that I would be a bigger fan coming out of this interview, and there it is. I didn't realize you were even helping to train operators and, and board members and clerical staff and everything. That's, that's fantastic solution right there. Um, want to see if we can dig into like that regionalization in New Mexico. Can you just tell that story and, and what happened and what the impact is? Oh my goodness. Um, yes. Love to. We, I hope we have a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> um, let me, let me tell you, I'm going to specifically reference one, one project. And the reason I'm going to reference it is because last week we, um, we did the strategic plan and the uh, board, the entire board, RCAP board, came over and visited that particular project. So I'm going to share with you about the Lower Rio Grande. The Lower Rio Grande started with five individual communities. And they came together because um, they were all being required to do a water conservation plan. I'm talking about the 2005, okay. when it was the beginning of the, um, of the drought. Mm. And so they were really having to look at water conservation. So they were each required to do water conservation. I was the technical assistance provider that was working with every single one of them. And I knew that they all had the same requirements. For me, it made no sense to do individual water conservation plan. So I, I, you know, we discussed, why don't we do a regional one? And so the regional water conservation plan was the one that brought them, brought them together. Yeah. They created an umbrella organization and then they had also been talking to the legislators um, because they each traditionally, they each would go to the legislator and ask for funding. And the legislators would say, you know, we only have so much money and this money can only benefit so much. So you guys are going to have to prioritize because we can't fund everybody. It's not a realistic expectation. So then they went back. Me being the technical assistance provider that worked with all of them, I was probably the only one that knew that they had the same engineer, the same attorney, the same bookkeeper, the same accountant, and they were paying, they were keeping, you know, this organization's employed. And so when they figured that out, they said, why are we doing this five times? And then they started seeing that, okay, so they have, they each have five board members. Wait, we're talking about 25 people in this very small community. So we're doing this five times. And so they invited a group of um, 10 communities, 10 utilities, and but nobody really you know, took the invitation. So the five moved forward. In 2008, we worked together to figure out what they wanted to be when they grew up. <laughs> and as a result of that, we did an extensive research. I, I did the research myself and looked at the existing stat statutes in state and what they could do with those statutes. And after a very long conversation with the groups of 25 people, they said, none of these things work for us. They don't work. What was the option? Write your own legislation. And so we wrote the legislation. Wow. And we submitted that legislation that same year, and it passed the very next year, which we never thought would happen because it was this was historical. There was no, nothing like that had ever happened. So we passed legislation in 2009. Um, I, I believe it was April 6th when um, <laughs> former Governor Richardson signed it into law. And that was the first legislation in New Mexico that created um, 
the ability by statute for these communities to come together and work to com together. The communities remain in place. They still have their identity. Nobody lost their identity, but now they have an umbrella entity that protects, that provides um, water and wastewater. Mm. Wastewater to most of them, but water to, to all of them. That has proven to be a very, very successful model. Um, last week when we met with them, they showed, they showed us that they have so far secured close to $90 million on infrastructure funding to make improvements to, to the utilities, which if you think about it, Travis, they would have never been able to do it individually. But now they, they cover huge political districts. Actually, they have grown to 15 communities since then. They have, they're, provided, they're providing services to 15 communities. It has gone so successful that they have become a model. And so as a result of that, last this year, earlier this year, we passed legislation that is a generic template, if you will, of something similar so that other areas of the state can follow that model. And other areas have been identified um, that are interested in moving forward under that. It's called Senate Bill 1 and it, it was uh, during this legislative session. So I think many, many things um, to highlight about that process. I think the most important one is the fact that no one took over anybody else. Everybody retained their autonomy and their identity. And I think that's one of the successes um, of that particular regionalization project. That's a tremendous story. Uh, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Always. Yeah, well, I mean, that's supposed to be amazing for you, right? You yeah. actually were there on the ground, 2006 timeframe, mm -hmm. and then you just see them here, what, 17 years later, yeah. when you're the head of RCAP, and they've got $90 million to, to work on their water. That's great. Uh, I, I wanted to kind of ask you lastly about what is needed to make more progress in these rural communities. Uh, you know, you, uh, money is obviously a big one. That goes without saying, I think. But what else, what else is key right now to help accelerate solutions for these communities? Two things come to mind. As you mentioned, money. I will, I will say, because I always say it, so today's not going to be the exception. Um, you know, money can be part of the solution, but it's not the solution if it is. It's not a full solution as long as it has the many restrictions that it has right now. Mm. And, and let, me, let me explain to you where I'm going with that. Right now, the funding that we have, it's for tangible infrastructure. It, it, on the, on the um, transportation side, you know, it's for bridges, it's for roads, it's for things like that. On the utility side, it's for miles of pipeline, if it's for new wells, it's for new treatments, it's for new, more storage. That is the kind of infrastructure funding that we see. Mm -hmm. But who supports that infrastructure? Who sustains that infrastructure? Who guarantees that infrastructure investment is really going to address a long-term problem? And so sometimes when we're not investing is what I call on the human infrastructure, the development of those that will actually make sure that that infrastructure does what it's supposed to do. So we don't have 
for example, we're not investing in developing the capacity of decision makers to make the right decisions um, for communities. A lot of times we have engineers making the decision, but their decision is based on a project or, or money that they're able to qualify this community for. It's not really, it's not necessarily based on what is the best long-term solution for this community. Yeah. So in my mind, you know, we need to hire, right now, um, let me take it back, 15 years ago, 100% of the communities that I work with we're managed and operated by volunteers. We have a volunteer force that is not coming back, that it's it's part of the previous generation. They are retiring and there's no one to fill those positions. But in the last 15 years, the one thing that we've seen changed a lot is the number of regulatory requirements. And how do you expect a volunteer to, to be able to comply with all those requirements? It's not a reasonable expectation. And it, uh, you know, as we continue to talk about climate change and other things, it's not only funding, it's, it's being able to provide the capacity for, for entities to be able to pay professional staff. Yeah, you said the workforce. It's, workforce. It comes down to that. Yeah. It comes down to that, but it's just not, it's qualified work. Sure. To sure. be able to meet regulatory requirements and all of that. And so when we're talking about small communities, the one thing that we always have as a challenge is the economies of scale. We just do not have the numbers. We don't have the numbers to compete for funding. We don't have the numbers to be able to offer competitive salaries and be able to attract um, qualified staff or retain. So there's the attraction and then there's the retain mm. retention. And so how do we grow those numbers, Travis? So it's it's not just funding at the federal level. There is a substantial piece that in my mind is missing and is how do we make that sustainability happen? Because it's not only investing in infrastructure today, we need to make sure that those investments and that infrastructure is going to address the problem from here to for 20 years, 30 years, maybe even 40 years. And when we're lacking that capacity on the front end, we really are not getting to that long long-term solution. And so funding is one of the challenges. Okay. Um, but, you know, as I said, the rest of the capacity needed to make sure, um, you know, training, we're not investing in leadership development. Mm -hmm. Leadership development, I think it's very important because yes, we need water and wastewater in the communities, but what else does that community need? Like, for example, right now, um, as a result of COVID, we're seeing a lot of people moving from the urban centers back into yeah. the rural communities. Well, it puts an additional stress on the infrastructure. Nobody saw that coming. Mm -hmm. And so wastewater systems are overwhelmed. Water systems are not keeping up. There is The, the design was not really there in place for enough um, storage capacity. And so it, it all compounds. Sure. You know, it all just adds up. And so water is part i mean funding is part of the solution but i think we need fu flexible funding mm. um flexible funding because a lot of the a lot of the funding requirements and and we're talking about like especially the federal funding right now 50 shades of it on the water side and another 50 on the wastewater side because every state has its own set of requirements mm. and so what applies in virginia doesn't apply in Ohio. And so 
there's that too, you know, how it rolls, the funding rolls out to every, and obviously every state has its, has its own needs, but. Yeah, so keep, funding's good, more of it will be great. A flexibility, flexibility with the funding, be, including being able to help build capacity through workforce, leadership development, yeah. and uh, tackle these challenges. Definitely. Well, Olga, uh, this is a really great conversation. Thank you uh, for coming here to the Reservoir Center in DC to talk uh, and for sharing more about what RCAP does. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it and, and always happy to talk about the great work that all, all of our technical assistance providers are doing out in the field. Thank you for listening to the podcast. To find all episodes, sign up for email updates, and connect on social media, visit waterloop.org. You're in the water loop.